This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you need to know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal's always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Corbin Lundberg. Um, Corbin, you know, it follows in a long line of currently serving veteran artists that we've had on the show. Obviously, we've talked to a lot of folks from the Marine Corps Combat Art Program uh, this time, we brought in an Air Force combat cameraman to talk to. Corbin is an artist outside of the Air Force as well in uh, with painting and um, you know graffiti art and other, you know, he's done a lot of other artistic stuff outside of his photography. Um, and he has interesting initiatives that he's putting together also for Christian artists uh, in Atlanta. But Corbin was one of those guys that, um, you know, I, I wanted to get some representation from the Air Force in there, and I thought that was interesting. But Corbin really touches on a lot of different facets of of military life. Uh, I think the perspective he has, no pun intended, as a combat cameraman, uh, you know, traveling and working and being attached to so many different soft units from across the services. Um, you know, he's now a master sergeant in the Air Force Reserve, so he's been in for a while. He's seen a lot of different things. Um, and then also his own take on the, uh, the Civ mill divide, I think is important and worthwhile and noteworthy. Um, so without giving too many spoilers away, it was a fascinating conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. He was a welcome profile and havoc. Uh, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Corbin Lundberg's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Corbin. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you, yeah. Um, I got so many questions, it's kind of hard to know where to start so i'm just going to start from way out left field are you an artist <laughs> yeah that's um 
that's a title that I dodged for many years, but something I've come around to accept more recently. What's what's the hesitation to embrace that title? Well, as a as a as a kid, I kind of grew up at the skate park, and um, it was a little bit cooler to be a skateboarder and be a fighter, be tough, and being an artist wasn't. Uh, it's not really what comes to mind for most people um, in that community. So it took me a while to kind of figure out what that means to be an artist. When did you get comfortable with the idea of being an artist? What did it take? You know, when I think I first got excited about the idea of pursuing the arts was when I was, I was on my first assignment. I was active duty, 18 years old, stationed in South Korea. And I was working a tattoo apprenticeship out in Seoul on the weekends. And this was the first time that I was um, met artists who I looked up to and who I admired and um, saw a lifestyle there that I wanted to be a part of. Obviously, you'd made a choice earlier than that to go into a line of work though that was relatively artistic right i mean you had your choice i mean you're an athletic guy you could have done a lot of things um but you chose to go into combat camera right off the bat didn't you no so this is um combat camera didn't come onto the scene maybe to about five years after this oh wow okay yeah so i joined the military Mm -hmm. as a supply Mm -hmm. troop i was working in the warehouse at the time and I joined, I went active duty um, right out of high school. I was about, you know, kind of that 17, 18 um, barrier when I enlisted and then found myself in Korea a few months after joining. And at that time, I didn't know uh, much about military careers. I just thought your career was the military. So I joined the Air Force, um, worked the job they told me and went, you know, was sent where they sent me. So I didn't know that there was... Um, these different avenues I could pursue until a little bit later in my career. What did you hope to get out of the military when you first joined? What was the aspiration? Uh, I think initially some adventure. Uh, There's more to it, but I I was just a pretty adventurous kid. And uh, I was not really a big fan of the classroom. I, I wasn't excited about school. And I saw this as a way to um, get out and see the world and, um, yeah, I, I didn't travel much growing up as a kid either from Minneapolis and that was my whole world. And I wanted to expand that. And what year was this that you enlisted? This was 2008, 2009 when, when that got serious, I graduated high school, 2009. Okay. So to, um, by the time I was actually through boot camp operation on the military is what well, just turned 2010. Okay. And so yeah, that was coming off, you know, kind of almost 10 years in GWAT era there too. Not really from a military family, nor is Minneapolis a very pro-military community in general there. So it was kind of negative views around the military as a whole. So me joining wasn't necessarily something that was an honorable or cool thing to do. It was more um, kind of a, seen as a last resort for a lot of people where I grew up. Well, yeah. And what did you think? uh joining i mean to join at that time in the g what were you tracking the war did you care i mean obviously 
you were willing to enlist, but what was the motivating factor to get you to sign? You know, this is, I guess these are some pieces that I'm still trying to put together in my head. Um, I definitely, I didn't play video games growing up as far, you know, like Call of Duty. I didn't know much about uh, military culture, or, you know, wanting to be a warrior or anything crazy like that. I wasn't necessarily like, you know, put me on the front line. I want to serve my country. I want to deploy. Um, when I was, I just don't think I was even old enough or aware enough to even know what I wanted back then. Um, so when I went, I, I took a very different route when I first joined, it's just the way the cards landed, but I ended up going to Korea for a year and then Italy for three years after that. So my time in the air force was very, not what people expect. Um, you know, I had a nice little car. We're staying in hotels. We were traveling, we're partying. We're kind of like college kids, but instead of going to class, we would go work in the warehouse. Right. Right. <laughs> but had you been following the war when you enlisted? I mean, you knew there was a war on, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just so distant and so foreign. I don't think I'd, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't point to you on a map, you know, where this was happening. I, I don't think I knew anyone personally. Um, I didn't have family, friends at the time that had deployed or really talked about it. So I think my scope was really limited to a little bit I saw in the news and that was typically negative, you know? Sure. And then it was more, I think, thinking back now, I think a lot more of it kind of circled around George Bush more than it did actually the war. It was more kind of a political thing than it was uh, about the people or the region or stability. My limited scope was kind of like war is bad. George Bush is bad. That's what was pushed to me. Not that I necessarily um, subscribed to that. It was, I, I think that that was what I was growing up in. It's funny. I've, um, I, I agree. And I, I was acutely aware of that during those years. And I, uh, I think you're the first person that's articulated that, that that was kind of <laughs> big first person I've talked to that's like openly said, Hey, yeah, this is actually kind of what was motivating uh, all that um, from what you could see. And I think that's right. Um, did you consider the fact that, okay, yeah, you want to have some adventure, but you could end up in a war zone and that obviously you're signing your life away, that whole thing. Did that weigh on you? Was that at all? It was part of the adventure. Like, yeah, I'm down to see some war. Yeah. Let me see what that looks like. Yeah. I, you know, I think when I was, I think I was just kind of so ignorant back then it was like, if it happened to happen, but I didn't really think about it. Um, after getting, if it happened, I think I would have been excited. And if it didn't, I wasn't necessarily let down. Oh. I was kind of just as excited about either opportunity. And the one that came was a little bit more of the adventure through the arts because we were traveling around Europe for a few years there. My friends and I, who uh, some of them were also graffiti kids. So we were like going to, you know, graffiti spots and parties and hanging out in these European cities and bars and clubs. That was, it was, it was a, the adventure I was seeking and I was, it was culture and I was able to see a lot, but it had, it was so far removed from the military. How would you have defined yourself coming out of high school? I mean, were you a graffiti skater kid? Is that who you were? Was that yeah, your, pretty, okay. pretty much. It's, um, so, I, you know, Minneapolis, so snowboarding, um, skateboarding. I, I wasn't really like a team sport kid. I wasn't academic. I didn't have a letterman jacket. I didn't care about school events or anything. It was pretty much 
like skate park, graffiti, snowboarding, and then girls and parties. Okay. And did you, at no point, did you see that having a, a any kind of Venn diagram overlap with the arts writ large? It was kind of, it, you just kind of were living the teenage life in the moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I think just that being a teenager, a bit angsty, you know, you're still kind of trying, still kind of against the system. If you want to call it that. Yeah. N- yeah. Not even knowing what you're against. You're just, again, it's just cool to be against something. So. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so going around Europe, I mean, where were you doing graffiti? What was that? What was that look like? What's that lifestyle like? Well, so we hung out in Slovenia quite a bit and there was these like kind of art communes and co-ops where um, it was pretty much a free for all. You could pretty much openly just do graffiti around these old like Soviet cement centers. And there's also wow. these like parties and kind of this underground culture. So we would hang out there quite a bit and we'd hang out in Croatia and um, we'd go out to, you know, Hungary and um, Bosnia and, you know, they're kind of these post-war torn countries and um, they need some beautification. <laughs> yeah but yeah even then i guess i wasn't painting a whole lot um back then as much as i was just exploring kind of going to i go, would go to some galleries and t- i just took a lot of pictures of art um did a lot of yeah a lot on, honestly you know i think it all it revolved around partying more than anything <laughs> which is it's kind of embarrassing as you get older because you're like man i just kind of wasted so much time like just drinking and chasing tail around Europe. It's kind of dumb, but I mean, that was, I was, you know, between the age of 18 and 22. And I think that's, I think that's just where we were at in life. Well, let me ask you about that though. Do you think, uh, you know, do you think that art requires a muse and sometimes that muse is going to be women and drinking and partying? Yeah, I think, as, as I look, uh, look in hindsight, I think a lot of it's kind of just building a visual library mm-hmm. and, and, re- and references that have been pulled from in your head and just expanding your frame of reference. So the more we traveled and the more we saw and we met people and we experienced the language, culture, architecture, buildings, I think all that um, just kind of led to making better art um, over time. So what we would do is we would travel around on the weekends and then i would you know go back i was stationed at aviano um, air base in italy i would go back i had my own dorm room that was pretty big and then there i had canvases and i would spend you know the rest of the week drawing after work i'd paint draw and i also set up a little tattoo studio back then so i was tattooing dorm kids and then i would do that kind of monday through friday weekend would hit we'd go travel have fun come back and then um after work was kind of my time to do art and then i've been you know i'm working supply and logistics kids sitting in a warehouse for 10 hours a day so i would try them on cardboard and that's actually a great life for an artist i mean you're getting paid you got a regular paycheck and then you got dedicated time that you can always plan ahead hey now's my time to do art it was great i really can't you know complain at all about uh, the way stuff went I just got to the point where it was like, man, I wish I was spending this, you know, nine to five or eight to 10 hours a day being like a dedicated artist. And that's what I was expected to do. And it wasn't me sneaking away from what I was supposed to be doing, (laughs) you know? (laughs) 
What did you find? So first off, had you been trained or was it just like high school art classes? Like what was your background? What was your schooling artist? Yeah, no, no training. I avoided the high school art classes as much as I could, because again, um, I was kind of embarrassed about it. It was cooler. Well, I I enjoy gym class too. So um, yeah, gym class. um, Yeah, no, not much training. So what was driving you to do, like, when, when was the first time you started doing anything artistic? Was it graffiti? Was it painting? Was it drawing? Was it doodling? What was it? What got you into it? Graffiti, I think okay. seventh grade. I just started, I, I was up in like Duluth, Minnesota, I think, driving through some train yards as a kid. And I just remember seeing, you know, letters on trains passing. And then I think I started mimicking that as early as seventh grade, I remember was the first year that I started just writing my name in bubble letters. Mm. And then at the skate park, um, the first time that I really knew what I was doing was, and this goes again, back to kind of the skate culture of early two thousands, late nineties there. And, um, it, it was the kids, um, all graffiti in their skateboard, uh, decks, the grip tape. So everyone had paint markers and all the older kids had tag names, you know, and paint markers, all hit these pieces and everyone was looking at each other's boards and, you know, talking about their names and me just being probably a fifth, sixth grader at the time started picking up on that. So then it was kind of part of the culture. So it's like, okay, I need to, the kids that I looked up to thought were cool writing graffiti. So seventh grade is when I started writing. And then I probably started putting stuff on the street, like eighth grade. When did it migrate to a canvas or a scrapbook? Not until a little bit later, probably in the military is when I started painting canvases for the first time. Uh, I, like you said, I'd probably had an art class or two in high school where I was doing, I actually, yeah, I had a few high school art classes and even back then I would draw like MMA fighters. I think I like Randy Couture portraits, <laughs> Chuck Liddell boxing gloves scenes, <laughs> just because I, it was like the only, I don't know. They're like, you know, draw what you like. And uh, you know, those totally. Are the, yes. Yeah. Those are the big fighters at the time I was in mm. the, the UFC is kind of a heyday of that. So what, uh, I mean, that's kind of a big move to suddenly decide, Hey, I'm going to actually buy a canvas, set it up. I mean, there is like working with acrylics or whatever. I mean, like there's, there's stuff to know about that. Were you just figuring out and fucking around or were you, did you research? I mean, yeah. How'd you know what to do and what was the inspiration for making the move? Yes. Yes. Pre internet as we know it. So there wasn't really YouTube videos. There's no tutorials at the time. It was just trial and error. Like I said, we were kind of dirtbag kids. So we'd go to Michael's and steal art supplies, paint markers, acrylic spray paint. I mean, that's part of the culture. Graffiti is racking paint. So um, we were always, I always had, you know, paint on hand and I, yeah, as, as kids, we'd all get together, you know, at a friend's house and sit around and draw and paint on, you know, scraps of cardboard paper and skateboards and our friend's walls. I think all my walls in my parents' house growing up were covered in graffiti and art. So my, my, and my parents were pretty cool and supportive of all of it. My dad, um, my, my dad was good in the arts, not necessarily a professional artist. I probably could have been if you wanted to go that route, but they were pretty supportive and actually 
never really t- discouraged me from doing what I was doing. They got mad when I got arrested, but out- outside of that, there was no, um, you know, like, hey, don't do this. Stop doing art. You need to go to, you know, you need to pursue something different. They were very cool with me expressing o- myself that way. How often did you get arrested? I think by the time before I turned 18, I'd say I probably had about five different run-ins of some sort of at least being put in the back of a cop car. I think I went to court only twice. One of them was like kind of, one of them was like a diversion program course. My mom had to take me to, to stop vandalizing stuff. And then I think twice, like there was actually charges that stuck, but they were pretty minimal slap on the wrist stuff, probation and some community service. Did you ever do anything to ding your security clearance later on? I don't think so. I think your record clears when you turn 18. And then oh, I was right. a minor. Before 18. Yeah, I was a minor. So I think I joined the Air Force with a clean record. Um, wow. Um, yeah. so, when, so when you actually turned to proper painting on canvas, did you see that as like a mature, a maturing of yourself or of your art? Or was it like, oh, well, hey, I'm just going to fuck around and do this too because this is what's in front of me? Yeah, I started painting canvases after my little tattoo shop got shut down at Aviano. So I was Uh there in Italy. I was running, you know, the the dorm room tattoo shop for about a year maybe. And then it it got popular enough that it made its way back to leadership. Did you make some good money though first? I did. I did. I had a fat sock. In, in the top sock drawer rolled up of rolled in cash. I bet I had probably like four or five grand in cash sitting in my wow. sock drawer at the time. Uh, I mean, it's not crazy money now, but as a 19 year old in the dorms, it was some oh, good yeah. extra money. So, uh, you know, I would charge, you know, a few hundred bucks per tattoo back then. And I was doing maybe two a week and uh, I started to add up and then got back to leadership uh, they didn't crack down crazy, but they gave me the kind of talk like, Hey, I don't want to hear about this anymore. And then I think I, I was honestly getting kind of sick of tattooing. People were knocking on my door, like all hours of the night because yeah. it was right in my dorm room. So all these drunk kids would come knocking in like, Hey, I want his back piece and start talking about the sleeve they wanted. And there is no separation. So I kind of closed the door on that. And that's when I started painting canvases. And then I started selling the canvases for pretty decent money around Aviano. And then I was coming up on that four-year mark, finished my uh, time honorably on active duty. And I said, I'm going to get out and just probably pursue this art stuff full-time. That's incredible. Where were you selling it in Aviano? Was it on base? Was it off post? What, what were you doing? Yeah, there was, I don't know, it was probably part of some, you know, like some airman initiative, but we were having these little like gatherings and gallery events on base yeah there is there is a some sergeant who who put that together for us and then yeah even just co-workers were buying stuff i think facebook was kind of the base thing at the time um yeah between online and just selling stuff around base I, I probably sold you know 10 to 20 canvases for a few hundred bucks again nothing crazy but as right. a you know a young 20 year old it was enough to be like i could you know, I could probably make something of this. I, I want to back up just because there's one question I had when we were talking about you doing graffiti and yet always, 
yet not feeling comfortable in the artistic space, you mm-hmm. know, and Hey, well, I'm about other things. I'm about fighting or I'm about, you know, um, <clears throat> adventure or whatever. Did you feel like art had a natural place in your life to kind of be the end result of the adventures you would go on where it isn't a, it isn't a cause in and of itself, but it is a way of kind of putting a cap on your life and on your experiences. I think so. I think it helped me. It, I uh, internalized what I was seeing and then even, you know, I was not excited about this warehouse job uh, at all. I, I was, um, not really into that work at all. So it was a bit of an escape for me. It was a way to just zone out and tune out the world. And um, yeah, probably a bit, a bit of that escape or release. I think that's what it was at that time because it changes when you move to being a professional artist, why you make really changes. And, and that's a whole nother brings its own problem in itself. Once you have commissions and clients and deadlines, and you're now creating for different reasons. And I enjoy both of it, but they, um, yeah, I think just the journey of figuring all that out. So when you leave active duty and you're going to be an artist full time, are you thinking it's just going to be painting? Were you thinking there was going to be yeah. other media as well? Yeah. Yeah. When I left active duty, this is 2013. I moved back to Minneapolis and I stick with reserve more for the benefit reason at that time. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, if I'm going to be an artist, I should probably keep some sort of retirement and healthcare in place. And um, I was like, I'll I'll go home. I'll stick with the reserve for a bit and I'll give art school a try. But the plan back then was yeah, to just be a painter. Wow. I I had no camera training or aspiration. These. Um, I took some photos back on my time on active duty, but it was more point and shoot. Um, like, oh, it's a cool statue. Took a picture of it. I, I wasn't necessarily artistic or creative or would consider myself a photographer at all back then. Okay. And so when you go back to Minneapolis, do you go to art school? I did. I went to Minneapolis College and College of Art and Design. I think I rolled 2014, mm-hmm. went there for a year, and again, just felt like a fish out of water. It's like, these are not my people. In what way? Um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, so this is, I was 22 when I went there and I felt, I felt so much older than everyone. I was like, man, I'm just so much older than, <laughs> and, yeah. and, I, and, and as I think about it, it wasn't necessarily age because I was just, you know, probably wasn't even older than a lot of the people there. Um, it's just, there was a maturity, I think in a different yeah frame of reference that I just couldn't connect with the people there. Um, just, I'd, I'd just kind of been experienced it too much. I'd been to 40 countries by that time. Um, been all around the world had quite a bit of work experience under my belt. I'd been working for seven, you know, seven to eight years. Um, and here I was with a bunch of people that just, I just had a hard time relating with. Um, I, I, at this point I was relatively, uh, what's the word clean or sober, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I drank a little bit, but I wasn't smoking. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't raving. And a lot of these kids just got out of their parents' house for the first time and are exploring drugs and whatnot. And that's something that, um, 
wasn't into. So there was just that divide too. And then I also lived in a ministry home at the time. Um, and that was just something to being like a Christian white military dude in art school is you're not really the popular kid. So talk about that. Cause that, that to me is, um, sadly, that's an important aspect of, I think how so many veterans feel like square pegs and round holes in the art space. Mm-hmm. Um, how open were you about your faith? Was that something that you didn't mind talking about or was it something that, I mean, could people, how would mm-hmm. people know that, I guess, in your casual interactions? So I, at, at that point I was, I was um, still young and growing um, in that aspect of my life and in, in my faith. Uh, so if I backtrack a little, my final year of active duty, I was deployed to, um, well, uh, I was deployed to undisclosed location, but not at all a, a dangerous or scary mm-hmm. one. It was, uh, it was a supply base pretty much in the middle of the desert somewhere with nothing going on. So I, I sat around for six months in a tent and that was the first time that I really uh, wasn't distracted by partying and you know mm. chasing everything around me and i was quite bored i would say and um i just started reading more heavily than i ever did earlier in my life i just started reading books and was exploring and probably some deeper stuff and that's what led me to reading the bible for the first time so i started going through especially the new testament starting in the gospels and i was like man this jesus dude is like the coolest person i've ever read about like this there's so much he, he was me again, being like I said, a little angsty and countercultural, if you want to call it that. Like, that's what Jesus was at the time, and the way he was able to like be a person of authority, yet also like compassionate, also challenging the system. But and he was always, you know, a few steps of he- ahead of everyone around him. And then just kind of the divinity of that, and then also the physical transformation of my life as I was going through this experience was enough to send me all in where I was like, I'm going to follow Jesus and take him at his word of being God. And then that, you know, kind of changed the way I lived when I got out of active duty. So you were not raised that religious. My my parents um, are Christians, both of them were and still are, but a little bit different than how most people would probably grow up in the church. If you want to call it that my parents were uh, into motorcycle ministry. So both of them rode Harleys decked out in leather and they would travel around the Midwest with different motorcycle crews, um, you know, in their free time. And for them, it was a place to be a light in dark places. So they would go to bars and bike festivals and Harley events and just hang out with people. And I was always on the back of their bike up until I got to an age where I was like, all right, this is cool to (laughs) be on the back of your dad's motorcycle. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, that's, so that's a wild way to grow up. I mean, what did that mean for your faith then as a kid? Did you, were you just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm open to it, but I'm not super influenced by it. Or did it make like an indelible imprint on you? I was, I think I was just in for the ride. I wasn't necessarily against it as a kid, but I wasn't, it, I, it, it didn't click. It, it wasn't real to me as a child. It was more kind of a It's like what mom and dad did. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until that time in the desert when it became real to me and my own thing. And was that, 
And was this completely you on your own finding this? Did someone yeah. mention it? It was just you. Wow. Yeah. So like I said, it was a very bare base, just a few tents and a few mm-hmm. hundred pretty much airmen living out in this little supply base area. And it, it was all, you know, Alaska type tents out there. And then there's a few clues on base or hardened structures, one of them being the chaplain's office. And that was the only place that really had desks too. So I would go and draw in my free time and use the desk there in the kind of chaplain, the chaplain and MWR clue were the same thing. So there's little Keurig pot of coffee yeah. and a desk I would sit in there and draw. And then in the, there was also, you know, everyone sends deployed people books, especially people of faith send books down range. So I think I picked those up, started reading them. And um, there was like the academic side that was, that I was into and drew me in, but there was also, a very like real spiritual transformation that was happening kind of in my mind at the time. That's hard to um, communicate if it's something that you don't actually experience, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. When you left the desert, then what is interesting is that that didn't weaken. You didn't lose focus because now suddenly you're not in the middle of the desert with no distractions. Suddenly you've got tons mm-hmm. of distractions. Was it easy for you to stay focused and, and maintain your faith or did, Kind of go back no, and forth. A little bit of back and forth there. Sure. Um, it still was just as real and important to me, but the distractions did come back and um, it, it wasn't a, a overnight change for me. I definitely hung out with some old friends here and there and got into some more trouble, um, but definitely part of the journey there. Um, but definitely not to the same extent that we were raging before I left. Uh, but. Right. <laughs> And I guess to hit on all that before I, I had deployed, there was a lot of, you know, parties and drinking and running around Europe and all these different countries and different girls and stuff. And it was very empty to me. I think that's what, as I got down range, that's why I found something that finally was fulfilling and uh, filled in some of those gaps. Cause it was like, why, why am I still feeling like depressed and empty? Like here I am with, you know, beautiful women and, you know, making, what you know good money at the time when you're you know 18 and start getting that military paycheck yeah. cost yeah. cost of living allowance you know more money than you're used to you're, you're basically you're without want at that point because um, your your housing's paid for food's taken care of no insurance you're getting you know a few grand a month and that's just party money so you feel yeah. you feel like you got it back then so it's like man i got money we got girls we're in clubs had a little totally. bmw back then yeah you went doing art and here i am in all these you know we're in rome this weekend milan the next weekend we're up in germany Oktoberfest, and it just felt really shallow and empty when you're at art school then did you finish art school i only did a year okay and it yeah. would just because you were like this is not my place twofold yeah one i was just like i'm i was like this isn't what i signed up for it was a little bit more of that of what felt like you know a social experiment for some people and hmm. um i i wanted to legitimately become a better artist and grow in the business and you know ha- have a career and i felt like the people I was surrounded by and even the teachers were a little bit more engaged on the social side of the arts and talking about you know gender identity politics, social roles. And, um, I'm glad there's a space for them to do that, I suppose, but it's not what I was looking for there. That's interesting. That's interesting that that's, you know, it's funny because 
I'll, I'll digress for one second before <clears throat> for me getting into the arts again for the first time in like 20 years and it's it's i forgot how evangelical the arts community is about politics and social things and that, you know it's neither here nor there necessarily but it is funny when you're like it's interesting that for people with relatively a low stakes life where there's not a lot it's the opposite of a life and death business in so many ways yeah there's that evangelicalism about politics and social causes whereas when you're in a life and death business there's a reticence to jump to conclusions or to offer your opinions forcefully on other things that aren't related to the job at hand and the task at hand i just think that's an interesting luxury that I'm not sure it helps the arts community. That's a good way of putting it. I think a lot of it is a luxury. The fact that you have the time and space to sit around and think about some of this or dive into some of the stuff that a lot of the rest of us, like, I don't have, I don't have time to argue about who's pissing where, you know? <laughs> right. So when you leave, what's the plan then when you leave art school? So the, the second part of the leaving art school had to do with what would then push me into the military camera side of stuff. I joined the reserves. Um, I was able to retrain within about my first year there at Minneapolis. Um, I left supply and went public affairs. There was an open slot. They were advertising. They needed a base photographer. And me having that arts background, it sounded way better than counting aircraft parts. So quickly volunteered for that. But with volunteering for that would then, you know, be the retraining process. So I would have to go away for six months to military photojournalism school. And that interfered with art school. So gotcha. I had no problem walking away from art school to go to military photojournalism school. Is is that combat camera or is that a separate thing? Is that is there a distinction? That's, there? Yeah, that, that's still different. So uh, DINFOs is Defense Information School. That's at Fort Meade in Maryland. And that's where all of the DOD sends everyone in the information space or media space. So photographers, video, public affairs officers, uh, that whole world revolves around uh, defense information school. And at the time when I went, our class was strictly Air Force and it was strictly photography and photojournalism. So it was kind of a three-part course, one part writing, one part public affairs and media engagement, and then the third part photography. And how did it feel when you got there? That was a really good environment for me. Uh, it was a little bit of the education I was looking for, but there's still structure, which I enjoyed. You still had to be in class at time. So that's, the, that's what bothered me about art school, too, was the lack of structure. It was like kids uh -huh. could, would come and go. They would show up late. They would leave early. They would just kind of walk in and out of class. There was no accountability by a lot of the teachers. And then the teachers would ask about work and there was a lot of excuses and they go, oh, well, and I just kind of got sick of that. I was, I, I like authority. I like structure, especially in an academic situation. And the, and DINFOs of course had that, you know, you have military NCOs leading it. Yeah. And here you are as most, most of them pipeline right out of basic training kids that are sitting there, you know, sharp and straight listening to every word. So. It's interesting that a guy that was anti-authoritarian run around <laughs> found the, your path that the anti-authoritarian part of you that itch seemed to be scratched more in the ordered life of the military than in the open life 
of art school, right? Or, or did you change? That's a weird dichotomy. I, I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting. So when you're there, do you fall in love with the camera or is it just a necessary evil? Okay. Why? I did, yeah. What, what was so enthralling about it? So it was, I think, a lot quicker way to get to composition. Hmm. And I learned, um, I, I really started learning light for the first time, which helped me as a painter. Because in the past, I would just kind of look at something and then kind of paint it the way mm. I, I thought it I thought it should be. And photography really helped me understand light better. So, and then I think if you have a good understanding of light and how that works, it's going to make you a, a better artist across the board. Can you walk me through that? How how does that work? Does that mean that you can imagine when you're painting and and therefore imagine where light should be to illuminate a painting, or is it? understanding what the light is actually doing and painting it, what you're actually seeing. Both. Uh, a lot of it, okay. I think is just physically, uh, sorry, still there in my computers. No, I'm there. Okay. Sorry. Someone's calling me. I threw off my computer. Um, so there, there's the, the physical side, just purely understanding like light sources and light temperatures and understanding like warm light and cool light time of day. And when you ideally want to go out and, capture an environment uh, so there is very much the, the physical side but then we also hit a lot of like capturing moments so understanding um just kind of what, what what to look for in composition and moments and storytelling and storytelling is the other side before i was probably a little bit more of a graphic artist where i would just you know like okay i'm gonna draw skull and then i would just draw skull oh, and then gotcha. um the camera and I guess, yeah, if I can go back, it, a lot of it was, uh, we, we had some really good teachers too, who I still keep in touch with and can't say enough good stuff about, but just some really experienced people who'd been around the world and seen a whole lot and um, were really passionate about sharing everything they learned over their 20 year career with us and just poured all that into us in those six months. Where did you see yourself as an artist at that point? Were you like, hey, I'm I'm an Air Force cameraman or or, or photojournalist, and, and that's what you're seeing yourself as? Or did you were you thinking of how to marry this artistically? And hey, I'm an artist ultimately, and this is just another skill set that I'm onboarding. I think it was just another another tool in the toolbox. Okay. It did um set me it set me on path to to seek adventure again, the same way I was out of high school. Um, I graduated the six month course. Uh, I guess this is what I like about the reserve, I suppose. And it goes back to maybe some of the structure and fluidity that we were talking about earlier. After the six month course, I was really longing to just kind of get back into adventure and not being in the classroom. So that's when I moved into the van life um, adventure. I bought a van and I just wanted to play with this you know, camera that I was just introduced to. So I spent the next two years driving around the United States, living in a van, taking photos and uh, painting murals. And how did that work for the military? Did you just make it, you make your way back to Minneapolis every month for drill or something? Like I would, like? I'd fly, yeah, I would, I would park the van at an airport, fly back to Minneapolis out of pocket, go to drill every month and then fly back. And then um, all of this. So at this point I was working in the like wing public affairs shop in Minneapolis and that's kind of full spectrum. You're writing articles, um, 
taking photos of what's going around base. And this is when, oh, so it was at, at Dinfos that I learned about combat camera. But at, while I was at Dinfos, combat camera was only for active duty. The Air Force Reserve um, dissolved their program for about two years. They shut us down and we were based out of Southern California at March. And then they were down for two years. That's when I was at Dinfos. And then shortly after I graduated, they reactivated and stood up as a TFI unit with active duty in Charleston. And they were looking to fill slots with new photographers. And I heard about that shortly after joining. And that just sounded like the absolute dream job. So I jumped, jumped on that. What's the difference between combat camera and the photojournalism? Is it, I'm assuming it's that it's all camera and there's no mm-hmm. written journalism, right? Yeah. So kind of a buzzword that we use is like directed imagery at combat camera. We work a little bit more internal and we work for like the unit that we're supporting. We're not necessarily working for like commanders priorities and messaging. And as like a liaison to the public and sharing what's going on around base, but we go out with the unit or for an exercise or deployment, a specific mission. And we provide imagery and it's typically internal for all, all sorts of different reasons. It could be uh, Intel based. It can be historic documentation. Um, sometimes it's like forensic SSC battle damage assessment type imagery um, reconnaissance. It's uh, it's a, it's a big spectrum. We, and then information operations is, kind of been our the new realm that we're getting pulled into heavily what turned you on the most when you got into it what was the most eye-opening unexpected oh it was so combat camera is like living in a military recruiting video Uh, (laughs) (laughs) those videos that you know the, the dod all the different branches put out, you know, in, in recruitment, showing all the coolest stuff that we do. That's really kind of like the day in the life for combat camera. It's um, we're really kind of living that because <laughs> we're the ones that are usually shooting it. So um, it's the adventure. There's excitement. You're working with a bunch of different people. The relationships have always been really cool and special to me. I just meet some really good people. Describe what that looks like to integrate with a unit. So, I mean, are you, like coming in for a week? Are you coming in for a day? Are you embedding for months on end? Like, what does that look like? All the above. So sometimes it might be half a day, like show up and cover this airdrop. Here's your air crew for the day. Mm -hmm. Show up pre-flight, fly with them, capture the imagery and turn it over and then on to the next. And then it could go all the way out to, um, we have people um, out on you know six month deployments supporting a special operations team somewhere and they belong to that team what do you prefer what's the best assignment for you oh i i really enjoy it all the the air crew side has been a little bit uh, newer for me i think i'm maybe going on two years now of full-time air crew wearing wings and doing a lot of flying missions um, I, I really enjoy flying i've spent a lot of time in bombers now. I think I have close to a hundred hours in the B-52, um, all sorts of C-17, C-130 time. Oh, helicopters are my favorite. And then even some fighter jet time. So all of that's just been a, a lot of fun to be able to see that side of the military. And, but I do enjoy, I, I enjoy, I was at, but I do enjoy the ground side equally um, over the years of, 
being in, I've really gotten into the kind of commando warrior side of the military. And um, I do appreciate and embrace that side of the community just as much and something I'm always pushing to get better at. When it comes to your gear, I mean, do you guys ever, would you guys ever do stuff like GoPros or is it always Mm got to be cameras? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're not really limited to anything. We, we could, you know, go, we mount GoPros on different vehicles, on different people, on sometimes the front of guns on our helmets. We can put GoPros anywhere, but then we also typically carry a camera to ourselves um, that, you know, that just has a lot more resolution. And then our lenses can push out a lot further than a GoPro. Um, and then we have uh, night vision capabilities too, which have been able to help units out. Or just, yeah, night vision attachments for our cameras. Sure. As well as having them ourselves. Sure. Our own not our own nods and capability moving around at night. Um I always think that the personality piece has got to be crucial when you're just coming in to a unit for it could be, you know, as much as six hours or something. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, talk about that. Is that ever been an issue? Is that something you've struggled with to justify yourself or to fit into a unit? Or does it or are you gen- is it generally self-explanatory that everybody treats combat cam pretty normally? That's a really good question. I, I think that's one of the biggest dividing factors in our career field of uh, successful comm cam and when we're not, because we really are at the mercy of the units that we show up to support. Um, you know, we could get all the top clearance needed and they'll send us out to a forward operating base. But if those team guys there, that commander doesn't want a camera, are you around? You're not going to do your job. Um, so a a lot of it is, um, personality based. And then I think, so trust, you know, I mean, we're literally talking about life and death stuff uh, on some of these missions. So just having trust and being able to show that you're not going to be a a liability. So, and then just the, the personality dynamics that come with it too. Um, I'm sure you're quite familiar with, um, how close, some teams can be so throwing in an outsider is um, is a lot to work through sometimes. And I've had, you know, some, some real success with it and other times where it's just, it's really hard and some people just don't want you there. What approaches have you taken with that? I mean, or, or let me ask you uh, the thing I really want to know, mm-hmm. how's that messed up your work? And I, and I mean, for you, like in a way that maybe only, you know, where you're like, you know, I wasn't able to do my best work and it's because, this fucking asshole it just didn't appreciate me. And I, and like, do you find as an artist having the flexibility and the unilateral ability to do the art that you need to do? How do you, how or do you have a tough enough skin to be able to execute your art, even in interpersonally adverse situations? Or is it the kind of thing where you're like, yeah, I'm, it, it really fucks me up if you guys are dicks. So I, I haven't had any like like hard failures where someone was just straight up like, no, you're not like we're we're not going to have you here. Um, I, I've had a lot of maybe like quieter people that have kind of shown physically that they don't necessarily like having me or the camera around, but it's not really their decision to have me leave. Um, but this is more so in the soft environment. Um, all other environments, you kind of have free will to, sure. um, yeah, you know, like, uh, if, 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 you know, when I go out with the infantry, like they, you know, 
they're like, okay, what's up? Um, but it's more like when you get to sensitive, sensitive mission, sensitive faces, um, people are a lot more hesitant to have the camera around and a lot of it's just trust. Um, and I feel like a lot of that trust is kind of built behind the scenes is those moments in the gym, you know, when you're eating, it's, um, just kind of getting over some of the personality stuff. Um, but I haven't dealt with too many people that were straight up straight up sitting me down and saying, no, the hardest part is like just earning your seat at the table. And the longer I've been in, I'm realizing that we're not the only people that deal with that. Everyone's kind of fighting for a seat. What do you do to make sure you always qualify for a seat at the table? What pressure do you put on yourself? I tell them I'm a tattoo artist. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking truth. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do that? Yeah. have, Have you bartered for like, Hey, let me stick around a little bit. I'll do some tattoos for you guys. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so so I, I think one of the things that's been a little bit more advantageous for me is kind of using my role as a reservist and as an artist when I show up, because I, I think I come off um, a little bit. Well, I, just, I, I try to approach some of these teams and rooms and environments a little bit less like, hey, this is why like, this is why I'm credible and you guys need me. And a little bit more like, hey, this is my background. If you guys, if you guys want to use this, this is what I can do, and kind of provide that. And try not, try not to come in with, you know, the kind of the hard, um, you know, dick measuring approach that some people would come in. You know, trying to like out cool people or out, you know, I'm more credible or this is why you need me type thing. But a little bit more show up with the camera, do some work when I can turn, turn the imagery over and let the work speak for itself. And that's, uh, that's pretty much worked for me in the past. What becoming combat camera, how did that intersect with the rest of your art? Did you have a harder time going back to any other artistic media? Did you find yourself using the camera more on your own time or did you find like, you're not that interested in doing art on the civilian side that you're really focused on what you need to do on the military side, because that's so all encompassing. So the so combat cameras put me in some really cool environments that just very few people in our country are, are aware of or have seen. And I, I do really enjoy that. And it has yeah, changed a lot of my perspective on just what I want to do in life. Uh, yeah, I think it's changed the way I, I make art, tell stories, the type of people I enjoy being around. Um, I, I do just enjoy the veteran community as a whole, honestly. Um, as I kind of go back out into civilian space, it can be hard to connect sometimes. Um, but I think combat care gives you a little bit of a high in, in a dangerous way where you, you have some very exciting moments. And then when you go back to normal life, it can feel really dull. And then you're kind of always chasing, getting back into that level of action or excitement. So that's something that I've had to work to overcome. And then a little, this is something I've got over, but early on was something I I would say I've been getting over and it's been pretty good, but a little bit of the identity piece is um, I think it's pride and ego of being drawn to having some of those badges and titles that come with the people I work with that we don't necessarily will ever have. As far as, you know, having um, the credibility of 
calling yourself an operator, you know, I'm, I'm a seal, I'm a ranger, I'm a raider, PJ, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, I've spent quite a few years working with all these different teams and initially you feel a little bit um, inferior to everyone else being like, Oh, I'm a camera dude. What do you do about that? Um, I don't know. I guess that's, that's what I've been working through the last few years. Cause there was a part of me that was like, you know, maybe I need to, maybe I need to reapproach some of this and try to retrain into some of these programs. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's um, kind of learning to kill your ego. And I don't, when I really boil it down, I don't necessarily want their jobs. I think it's, I want the, you know, the respect that comes with those titles and I think it, that that was important to recognize because at the end of the day, if someone asked me like, "What's your ideal situation and job in the military?" I would answer taking pictures. Like that's really the only thing I want to do. How much of your identity, for uh, not necessarily for what others see you as, but for you, for yourself, how much do you identify as an Air Force combat cameraman, and how much do you identify as just an artist? Yeah, that's a, this is something I think is important for the military to talk about as a whole, because I think it's what leads to a lot of um, the the depression and stuff that comes with people leaving the military is they do place a lot of identity into their job title or who they were in the military. And then you get out and now nobody cares and that doesn't exist anymore. Um, So I personally stay pretty separated from that identity, especially when I'm here in Atlanta, I'm living my normal life. Not many people even really know what I do. So most people just know me as Corbin, the art dude, or but honestly, a lot of people don't really know what I do because they meet me. I meet so many different people in different roles. Sometimes I'm painting murals. Sometimes I'm there as an art director. Sometimes people meet me in the military. So a lot of people kind of just know me as um, in one category. Um, I'm saying this with an eye towards what you talked about, because uh, I think it's a relatable issue. And as a former soft support guy, like I can completely relate. The um, trying to find your identity when you're not the operator, and it's been made abundantly clear, like you're there to support the operation and all that. But yet, being an artist, where your identity is incredibly important to you, and it's how you generate the value that you have. Um, do you find that you have to be, this is going to sound a little more significant than I mean it to, but do you find you have to be sort of a different person when you put on the uniform and work with those kind of units just to exist and just to be able to get the job done? Or are you able to really be yourself and, and you know act as you would in any other artistic environment i think uh especially speaking to the soft community i think i'm actually able to be truer to myself in that community than i am the op than Mm. when i'm here in atlanta trying to fit into the art community uh yeah i i think that is closer to who, who i really am um when i'm um, 
around teams and that environment and those missions. I, I think that's, that drives me and um, I'm able to be more open and kind of fit in more. I've learned. And, you know, I don't know if it's out, if I would have said that, you know, 10 years ago, but where I'm at now, you know, is a, in my early thirties, um, I, I definitely don't feel like I have to be someone else when I'm out there. And then also what I've, uh, what's become really clear to me is, um, a lot of people in the military are looking to have identity outside of the military. So when they see someone come in, especially as a reservist that has, you know, who, you know, running a ministry, running a business, having you know, an identity as an artist and known for someone outside of the military, I think there's some respect there. I've had people be like, and bring me in and enjoy that because I'm not necessarily coming in as another military dude. I'm coming in as an artist. And I think they look, some people have, you know, appreciated that. What do you find um, is the disconnect when you're in the civilian art community? Where is it the same stuff as before? Or what, what is it that you find puts you at arm's length from them? Um, let's see. A bit of it's the faith aspect. I mean, um, following the, the art world, you know, mainstream art world and um, following Jesus aren't necessarily um, two worlds that I always see eye to eye. So that's one separating factor um, from the military perspective, especially living out in Los Angeles for a few years. Mm. The perspective of being a veteran is that you're a victim. Yep. And that was something that was really hard for me to get around and enough to kind of push me away from the art community for a good while. And I don't know if I've ever really ever fully um, come back around from that because I get tired of people in the art space treating me like I need uh, help or they feel sorry for me or the <clears throat> constant like PTSD talk and whatnot. Because the military has been the opposite for me. It's been um, <clears throat> enabling and I've learned so much and they've empowered me and you know, set me up for so much success and I'm such a better person because of the military. And then when I show up, they hear veteran and they think someone who's like wounded and hurt and yep. needs healing. Yep. And that's something that's been hard for me to grasp. What's been the separation with your faith? Is it, is it something that's said, is it specific actions or is it, um, are you parting before the first offense is the kind of thing where you're like, just based on what I'm hearing, I'm just not going to engage. Yeah. I think the last one, um, yeah. I think with, um, especially a lot of the identity politics and some of the gender stuff and, um, you know, you know, standing on a worldview that believes, you know, a man is a man, a woman is a woman, isn't something that's popular right now. Um, and that's stuff that I have no problem. You know, I, I, I stand on some of that. And with that, you're going to lose some people that like you. And uh, that's something that I've come to accept. And I, one thing I did when I was younger was try to, I, I think this goes back into your fitting in question. And it was trying to like, please everybody and not, not offend anyone, not ruffle, ruffle the water type thing. And now I have no problem just standing where I stand. And if people respect that, and I have no problem, you know, um, agreeing to disagree type thing. I, I don't, 
want everyone to necessarily affirm or think the way I do. And I don't think I have to do the same for them. I want to ask about one other thing that in my experience separated me from others. And you've had the same experience, which is um, for me, it was very voluntary or very involuntary, but uh, living in my truck for a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. I think for people that have never been um, homeless or, or, you know, whatever car yeah. are housed. I think mm-hmm. sometimes for me, I, I never forgot that. Like I, will continually take note of places to camp out for the night or, or, you know, just, it changes your worldview. And I remember, I remember like pulling, pushing my driver's seat back and watching people go to sleep at, uh, you know, go into their houses around me at night. And like, I felt a huge gulf between me and them. I was like, Oh, you're the people that live in houses. And I feel like you never really lose that when you've done that for a prolonged period of time. Is that true for you too? I mean, do you feel that at all? Is there is there any sort of separation still from that that you have with others, especially on the civilian side? Yeah, spending that amount of time both kind of isolated and living alternatively like that, I think for sure will forever shape your your worldview. Um, I, I have yeah, I had those same moments. I remember one night walking back to my van. I think I was in DC somewhere and there were, you know, these kind of inner city row home things. And I just remember looking through a window and just seeing a family all laid out on a couch, watching a movie together, having this, you know, just movie night and just thinking like, man, that's so beautiful and felt so foreign to me at the same time. Yeah. And um, to just kind of go back to your van by yourself and, you know, sit in (laughs) dark little metal box, you know? Um, So I, I think it, it allows, I think one, it allows me to appreciate a lot more now because from there we moved into a one bedroom apartment and that just felt like, just felt like so much space. And then we <laughs> moved to a house and then now we live in a five bedroom house. And um, I, I think if anything, it just really allows me to appreciate it. But I also appreciate the freedom of being able to have that mobility to go and live anywhere because I do still love that and want to do it again someday. And the military kind of allows you to do that because you can, you know, go and live in a, you know, an Alaska tent any old time, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah. Probably half the year I'm still, you know, living out of a suitcase. So I haven't had to fully give it up. And that's something that has been a lot of fun for me. What kind of art do you find yourself doing now on the civilian side when you do have a robust career as a combat cameraman on the military side? So I guess speaking particularly to this current season I'm in, um, as I mentioned, we're now, uh, my wife and I are in a a new house here in Atlanta. And this past season has been, uh, my time and creativity has been going into the house and kind of building the space to get back into making stuff. So I haven't been doing a lot of painting and art this past six months to year, um, as I think we were just kind of in a transition period to move into being able to make more artwork. So I think sometimes you have to sacrifice um, some of that time to make better art. So I've spent the last few months um, returning the basement into a photo studio, returning the garage into a paint and wood shop. Um, We're also building a community space to start hosting um, community nights where different artists can come through and have a space. 
And then also if we need to host artists ever, we have a spare bedroom for that. So I think we're moving a little bit more into the um, kind of community and art leadership side of stuff and considering like business and management. And um, it's a little bit more than just like waking up and painting something now, but a little bit more like the, why are we doing stuff? Who are we doing stuff for? And trying to build more structure and community around the arts. And ideally from here, we want to use this as a soft launch into um, buying our own ranch or warehouse, or we can start doing workshops and really build um, a space for artists to get together and make stuff. I might be doing a little projecting here, but is this because you've you've always felt a little bit at a right angle to the rest of the arts community, so it's nice to build your own arts community? You know, I think that's probably a piece of it. I don't necessarily wake up and think of it that way, but I, I think there's probably some truth to that, being able to um, have that kind of alternative art space outside of what people would consider the traditional i mean it's hard to say traditional art world because i mean it just means so many different things but i mean if you spend any time around i mean especially coming from la there's there's just a real culture around the gallery world and it's something i just have no desire for and um so my wife and i have launched a ministry called disciples make and our highlight is um telling the stories of makers as a whole within the perspective of being kingdom people and Jesus followers and the, the arts that we're dealing with are a little bit more than just um, painting, but maybe a little bit more blue collar in general. So, you know, like knife makers and welders and people mm-hmm. into smith, smithing and building and architecture and um, writing, quilting, working, anyone that's kind of working and, working with their hands anyone as a craftsman or a maker so we've tried to branch and we're trying to build community around that bigger the 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 bigger arts more so than just um what you would see in a gallery i suppose how long have you guys been at that i was going to ask you about uh disciples make but but how long has that been in existence now we really just started talking about it publicly in 2023 so we're a few months in yeah, but okay. we we have about six episodes currently in production. Uh, we've launched two. I'm working on another one this morning. We're actually leaving for North Carolina very shortly here to go meet with a father and son who run a forge up there. Uh, both of them have won Forge and Fire, the popular Netflix show, and they now have uh, a network of roughly 300 knife makers around the world. Um, we're all Christians, and uh, they also set up trips where uh, um, themselves and these knife makers go to different countries and teach the local populations how to uh, work with their hands here and forge and weld and whatnot. So they're really doing some cool stuff and we want to, we're going to go meet with them and see how uh, we could work together in the future. Is that the crux of the art community that you're talking about or is there, is there more to it? Is there more to your vision than that? So uh, a big uh, vision, a piece of the vision for me kind of comes down to the youth for one. I- I'm trying to create a space that I wish I maybe had access to as a kid. Um, so that kind of help people get started um, younger 
understanding the arts and how they can work into a career as they get older, because that wasn't something that I saw a vision for when, when I was in high school, um, I was, you know, more familiar with the term like starving artist or under the impression that you didn't really do art full time like that. So I'll, there's like kind of the career side and helping the youth, which is something that I have a heart for, especially just, I just wish I had some more direction as a kid. I was like, man, I wish I had a mentor or some, someone a bit older that could help kind of walk, walk me through some of this. So that's been really big. Uh, my wife does this um, geared around actors. That's her background is acting. And then for me, it's a little bit more of the craftsman side. And then um, the second part is just, I really enjoy community. And I just think there's a lot of like, lack of that right now in our culture of that, that physical interaction, people, um, you know, putting devices down and just spending time together. And I've, I want to see a space for that. Uh, when I, my first six months living in LA, I lived in a little bit of an art co-op or commune, if you want to call it that, where there's just a bunch of, there's like motorcycle builders and glass blowers and music producers, uh, some art tech people, myself, furniture maker, all like living in a big warehouse in South Central. And we all had our own rooms and workshops, but everyone still hung out together on the roof at night. Skate, we, had a, we built a skate park up there. So there was uh, just really nice community just to be around a bunch of other creatives all the time. But the, the downfall to this community is it kind of revolved around drugs again. And um, I'd like to create that space that might be a little bit more clean and uh, less uh, less intoxication from different substances, if you want to say that. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about doing stuff for the youth um, in your own life, are you the artist that you are now, if not for the military? Oh, the military is most definitely shaped me. Uh, it'd be hard to kind of know who or where I'd be if, if I would have gone a different route. Because I say that, I mean, I'm with you. Like, it's awesome to think of things to do for the kids. And I don't want to say that joining the military is is the answer, but at the same yeah. time, like, there's a part of me that goes, like, as you saw, the the kind of masturbatory indulgence that can happen in the artistic community if there's no real mm -hmm. life stakes. And there is something grounding about going, hey, I did it even a couple of years and mm -hmm. shit, I'm better for it. I'm wiser for it. I'm more grounded. And now when I do my art, there's a lot more meat on that bone and I'm not mm -hmm. simply going over the same thing as everybody else coming at it from the same point of view as everybody else, bringing nothing new to the table and trying to forge my way through the white noise of just all the art school gobbledygook. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm that's more of a pontification than a question, but re respond to that. I mean, is there anything to that? Absolutely. So in my head, I sometimes think of it as like a still life drawing. So if anyone's unfamiliar with that, in like a drawing class, the teacher's going to put a still life in the center of the room. And it's just a bunch of objects, usually like a pine cone and a tire, a skeleton, a bunch of stuff, you know, and then, you know, maybe 10, 10 artists will come in and you each grab an easel that creates, you know, a 360 circle around this centered still life. Each artist looks at the still life and draws what they see based upon what's in front of them. And I feel like a lot of the art world, everyone's all sharing the same easel and looking at life mm. and agreeing together. And I think the military puts you on the opposite side of that still life and allows you to see something that no one else has a, a very different perspective. And I think that's the benefit that we have as veterans.
how important is art? And I'm, and I want, I'm asking that from two different perspectives. One for kids, you know, that are setting out on their lives and where should art fit into their education? And then for, let's say veterans or people in the military or people in the life and death business, how important should art be to them in their lives, whether or not they're an artist, how important should that, how big a role should that play? This is such like a, such a good question that I could probably ramble to for way too long, but I I struggle with this because there's like a part of me that's like, it's not important, but then there's the part, then there's the other side of me that's like, it's everything, you know? So where you draw those lines is, I don't know. So, I mean, so when you're, you know, you're military, you have people there, you have like a surgeon, you have people flying aircraft, you have very like analytical minds that are doing stuff that are literally life and death. You know, if a pilot, his mistakes could lead to the death of, you know, a lot of souls and um, a surgeon, you know, a wrong cut could end in, life or death again and sometimes as an artist i don't think we always feel that pressure um i don't know if it's it's if it's so life and death so important so um so stressful i guess but then i do think there's like the flip side where a lot of people are still alive still pushing still have meaning and find purpose and in life because of art and then i mean then that leads into the deeper question like what is art are we talking about canvases on a wall are we talking about a book are we talking about mm-hmm. society itself being art I, you know i think that just gets into some gets into some really deep perspectives there but uh i wish i had a better answer for you no it's all right i i'm happy to hear where you're coming from with it i think it's true i think it depends what why you yeah. know i mean why are people doing the art i feel like in the veteran community when people turn to art, there's a pretty good fucking why mm-hmm. if you're coming from it for kids. I mean, the thing I'm, I'm always nervous about, I'm like, I think it's great for kids to learn art. Mm-hmm. I hope there's a why behind it because otherwise I think it devolves into Insta fame or mm-hmm. influencer status or something like that. And that, that concerns me where I'm like, eh, are we putting the cart before the horse? How about you go do fucking something first? Go, go yeah. live a little. You know, and then and then the art's there to help you unpack it. But go do something, help some other folks first. You know, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at with it. For sure, I I think that's that's a good way of saying what was on my mind. It's like there is a point where I think some people take their art way too serious. But then at the on the flip side, art is very serious for a lot of folks. Like you said, when you're unpacking, unwinding, when you need that space to, to share everything you just experienced. So the why, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Hey Corbin, tell everybody how they need to follow you, uh, the sites they need to go to your Instagram handles. Um, you got a bunch of different lines of effort now that we've talked about. I mean, what, uh, what should people be doing to follow up and, and to keep track of what you're up to? Uh, yeah, I've, um, so in the, in this whole journey, we just kind of talked about, I think five years ago, I was a lot more um, invested in trying to be known and followed and wanted people to know what I was doing. And I think um, more recently in marriage and homeownership and um, some of the jobs I've taken, I, I've pulled back quite a bit and have been 
a little bit more of a private person. Um, I do still share quite a bit on the internet, um, especially public uh, military missions and whatnot. Uh, it's been a fun, there's a good community there that I enjoy keeping in touch with, interacting with. Uh, so on Instagram, I'm still putting quite a bit of content up um, a few times a month. And that's just my full name, Corbin Lundborg. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-L-U-N-D-B-O-R-G. And then um, on the more professional side, I do have uh, three different websites up. One for our creative agency that's called Calm Collective. My wife and I run that. And that's uh, our commercial work that we do um, around the country right now through media. That's calm-collective.com. And then my personal website's corbinlundborg.com. And then Disciples Make is really where our energy has been this past season. And that's just disciplesmake.com. And um, I, ideally, I'll be moving into building that community there, um, as we talked about earlier, in uh, the maker craftsman space. So um, we're excited about that. I would love to, I, I try to stay pretty accessible. So if anyone wants to reach out, I'm pretty quick about getting back. That's um, awesome, man. This is, it's been a pleasure to talk and, um, and really a breath of fresh air um, in a space that increasingly does seem like it's um, all in the same grooves to the point of almost being in a rut. It's great to, to meet you and to hear where you're coming from and to see the content that you're putting out. And I know you had a post recently about the difference between content and art, but content writ large that you're putting out um it's it's an impressive set of line of effort, lines of effort and um it's been great to hear more about the method behind the madness yeah i appreciate it um it's always good conversations i love having these and um this one uh this one was dialed into the art a little bit more than me just talking about myself <laughs> some of the other ones have been i get kind of uncomfortable and feel like i start rambling about nothing that nobody cares about. So I appreciate your questions. <laughs> no, man, it's great. And it's great. And I, I can't wait to see the next stuff that you come up with and whether it's disciples make or whether it's your own personal work. Um, yeah. I mean, stay in touch, man. Uh, this was just a blast. For sure. Appreciate it. That was Corbin Lundberg's profile in havoc. You know, it's funny. Uh, this is one of those episodes that will be, that we will piggyback this one on top of the Savage Wonder podcast that we do for Vet Rep. Um, because I think it appeals to both a military and veteran-focused audience as well as an arts-based audience. Um, but it's an interesting perspective that Corbin can provide. And I think maybe you know, when we talk about the warrior artist community, obviously we have a bunch of those that we do talk to on the show. Uh, Corbin is, um, he presents a relatable story, which is the difficulties of fitting in to the arts community, uh, as a veteran, as a Christian, etc. And, um, that's a, that's a noteworthy and worthwhile conversation to be had. And I think we, we touched on a lot of that there, but, um, the myopia of the arts community is to its own detriment. And, um, and it, it does remove it so far from the veteran experience. 
in a way that probably a lot of you were like, ah, why are we always hearing from these artists on the show? You know, we want to hear from more, you know, just straight military focused people and you know, maybe you know, not as many artists. I haven't gotten that comment, by the way, but I'm just speculating. Um, and if that's a thought, uh, that's the art community's fault because from time immemorial, warriors have want, have needed and wanted to share their stories artistically so that their stories could live and could have meaning and could, you know, exist long after the warriors were gone. And so that people could learn from them and not only appreciate what they did, but learn, you know, have lessons learned. And, uh, the fact that that is that only a certain part of the military community sees the value in that is, um, a real ding on the arts community that they're, and this is my perspective. I feel like the arts community often wants to label and wants to put an overlay on top of the veteran experience to make sure that it conforms to the arts community's own ideological predispositions or cultural predispositions, as opposed to actually hearing where veterans are coming from um, in ways they might like and ways they might not like or might not fully appreciate. But, um, Anyway, I think Corbin has some interesting insight to that. So I think I'm glad he was able to come on the show. And I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. We started out this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. Now I want to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, which I already alluded to since that is obviously my nonprofit. Um, So Veterans Repertory Theater, for those of you who don't know, and I don't know how many of those there are at this point, But if you really don't know anything about Veterans Repertory Theater, allow me to tell you. Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt, nonprofit, 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for veterans to create compelling live theater and events. There's always a lot I could say more about VetRep, but I will suffice to say, go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. While you're there, the probably the most proactive thing you could do is sign up on our mailing list, which also doubles as a literary blog. So when you subscribe to that blog for free, by the way, it means that every day in your email inbox, you will receive an email with veteran writing followed by a bunch of shameless plugs. Um, so you can always be kept up to date on what's going on at VetRep and also get hip to some of the great veteran writers that are writing right now. So again, at vetrep.org, just scroll down the homepage, you will see the option to subscribe to the blog for free. And I would highly recommend that you do that and stay in the loop. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal, as always. And I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.